Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Before we begin, I want to remind you that there is a website associated with this podcast at wealthformula.com. And that's where you get all sorts of goodies, resources, lists to sign up for, yada, yada, yada. Okay, I mean... I'm trying to be more excited about this, but I say this at the beginning of every show. So hopefully you've already been there and you've already checked it out. But if not, seriously, you should, especially if you want to join some of our uh, stuff like, uh, you know, our credit investor club. Investor club is is where the magic happens in terms of actually uh, potentially seeing some deal flow. If you are an accredited investor, get onboarded, go to wealthformula.com and click the investor club button. I'm going to start off by saying this also that... I'm glad so many of you had a very positive reaction to last week's uh, Die With Zero podcast. I don't know that I've ever gotten that many emails from people who uh, who kind of uh, resonated with that message. So that's good. It, it means maybe we ought to do more of that kind of thing. Do an occasional book club. And uh, hey, you know, I think it's good. But you know, it's funny because one of the things I was talking about on that show is how I like trying to dress nicer now and everything. And, and for those of you who watch me on uh, YouTube, you might have noticed I like start to, you know, I've been wearing sports coats and stuff like that because, uh, you know, I'm just trying to up my game a little bit. But today I'm totally frumped out. I've regressed completely because I, I'm under the weather again. You know, I think I, I was working out too hard. Uh, I'm trying to, you know, doing like kickboxing and hikes in the same day and all that kind of stuff. And then I was traveling. I had this friend who like owns part of the Seattle Kraken team. He invited me up for his whirlwind trip and got to go up there with him and, and some friends and then came back. And then, then I went to the NFL draft the first round with my daughter and just a few days later. And then, uh, anyway, so I was kind of exhausted I don't feel exhausted, but my body's decided to just check out. And anyway, I am frumped out. That's where I'm at. So it's okay once in a while, right? doesn't have to be Brunella Cuccinelli every time. So, But of course, that's, uh, you know, this is kind of where I started, all frumped up. And when new listeners listen to Wealth Formula podcast for the first time, and they are listening to my early episodes, that was when I was uh, at my peak ugliest, and not only that, but the messaging that I had back then, well, I listen, I still cringe a little bit about it. It's not that the original material was bad. For me, it was just like looking at, you know, pictures, 
of, you know, guys in the 1980s with feathered hair, you know, like the Dukes of Hazard guys and stuff like that. And their perms were really in back then as well. You know, in the 80s and the early 80s when all that was happening, I was like, I just didn't comb my hair at all. That was my way of doing things. But so I didn't have that uh, particular issue. But I look, it's sort of like that. Looking back at those things and, you know, at the time, maybe those feathered haircuts and uh, perms looked like they were a good idea. But, you know, they aren't anymore, right? They aren't. But it could quite possibly uh, be back in vogue again in the future. And uh, every time... I think that's not possible. Something like mom jeans comes up and, you know, that kind of look. And and, and if, you, if you're if you a woman who likes mom jeans, I'm sorry. I'm, I don't know if that's sexist or not, but I just don't like that look. It's terrible. You know, and on guys, all the hipster beards are, well, it's, it's kind of getting old. I don't know. I don't know. And if you have a beard, I'll power to you. If you're middle-aged with a beard, it makes sense. <laughs> We're trying to hide our necks and stuff like that, but... Anyway, like hairstyles through the decades, my views on personal finance have changed with time and some have indeed gone full circle, right? Was I wrong before and right now? Well, not really. It's just that my perspective is a little different, right? I mean, I, and I suspect five years from now, I'll I'll come back and think about some of the things I think about today and the way I think about them and cringe, uh, cringe once again. You know, and just a constant cycle of cringing. But like, listen, like many guys approaching that whole, you know, five O, which I may or may be. Although I should say, my kids think I'm in. I'm I'm actually approaching four O, not five O. Um, I've been successful in convincing them that. But like many guys who are aging, nonetheless, I've become a little bit less dogmatic about my opinions than before and a little bit more open-minded, at least for now, because we all know when you start hitting dementia, you get more dogmatic. So anyway, I'm not there yet. For example, though, in terms of, you know, feeling less dogmatic, I no longer look down at people who invest in stocks and bonds. I got to change my website. I think I'm being too mean to those people on there. In fact, you know, I look at it, I'm like, you know what, it might not be a bad idea to grab, you know, some Vanguard indexes, buy the market, S&P 500, whatever, while it's all in the toilet. I mean, it's not the worst idea. I mean, it'll keep going up. That said, you know, I'm still deeply dedicated to the alternative asset space. And at my core, I am really a real estate guy. It's what I get. That's what I understand. It makes so much sense to me. But I've opened up to other alternative assets lately as well. I mean, you know, I'm interested in ATM machines. I've been an investor in ATM machines, you know, for, gosh, about seven years now. You know, it's it's, it's like a good, solid sort of uh, investment uh, uh, from my perspective. Obviously, I'm biased. I have a fund. It's at WFVelocity.com if you're interested. And then now I've begun uh, dipping my toes into some private businesses now, this is not something I, I didn't like before. I just didn't really have the skill set or trust anybody who did. But um, those of you in Investor Club know that we're now working with a, a very talented broker-dealer who used to run a sovereign wealth fund in the Middle East. So now I'm, I'm uh, emboldened to you know, get involved with some of those things, like random stuff, you know, like cargo ships and trade finance in the Middle East. I mean... That's something I wouldn't have touched before because of uh, my lack of knowledge or skill in, in evaluating that kind of thing. But now I am. But 
now the other alternative asset that it's sort of the 900 pound gorilla in the room is gold. And that is a topic that I have probably been the most dynamic on throughout the years. I started out telling people to buy gold, you know, and to load up on silver dollars. That was like, I was telling people to go buy monster box. If you don't know what monster boxes are, they're basically like, you know, these great big boxes full of silver American Eagles and, um, you know, and, and buy those and prepare for the zombie apocalypse because everyone knows zombies only accept silver coins as tender. When then one day I became violently against buying precious metals. And, uh, anyway, that was a total flip because I thought about it. I didn't see the point. Wait a second. What do precious metals do that real estate does not? They're both physical assets, uh, real assets, they're inflation hedges, but real estate cash flows has tremendous tax advantages. And meanwhile, the IRS code for gold profits is, well, it's downright punitive. And where the heck would I bury all that stuff anyway? Well, then recently, of course, some banks started failing you know, uh, with all these rates and the Fed and them printing tons and tons of money and who knows what's going to break next. And I, I start to see a glimpse of the doomsday perspective again. And believe me, I'm not a doomsday guy, but I get it a little bit. And I, especially in the context of, you know, the dollar and also the banking system and government control and all that kind of stuff. By the way, it's the same thing that makes me interested in Bitcoin. I mean, it's very similar to me in in that sense. And when that stuff started happening, well, I don't know. Again, I was like, well, maybe we ought to kind of open up the conversation on gold again and actually not be, you know, so I'd have plenty of gold shows, but I'd basically be like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And then I, you know. I wasn't telling the truth. I was like, oh, that was a stupid idea. Anyway, I'm open to it now. And, it, and, you know, it started to make more sense to me to potentially own some gold. But to be clear, I, I still don't own any. I just have that monster box of silver coins that I bought, you know, eight years ago, sitting somewhere in a nuclear bunker waiting for catastrophe. So now, again, I'm back in the camp of maybe I should buy some gold, but I'm still not sure. I'm listening and reading to people and, and thinking about it. One of the more respected uh, gold bugs out there is Brian London. He's a very rational guy in this space, right? You don't get the sense that he's trying to sell you something or whatever. Makes a lot of sense. He has a great newsletter to boot. He's uh, also known for this uh, conference he's had for years and years in New Orleans. And he is my guest this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. And we're going to have an interesting conversation about gold and precious metals when we come back after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. 
The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Brian London. Brian is the president and CEO of Jefferson Financial, a highly regarded producer of investment-oriented events and publisher of investment newsletters and special reports. Under the Jefferson Financial umbrella, Mr. London has served as publisher and editor of the Gold Newsletter, the publication that has been the cornerstone of Precious Metals Advisory since 1971 and has hosted the annual New Orleans Investment Conference, the oldest and most respected investment event of its kind. Brian, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Great to be with you, Buck. Thank you so much for the invitation. Well, you know, we've talked about um, gold before, Brian, and and, uh, you know, obviously it's, uh, you know, it's known as a hedge to inflation, but we're in a particularly um, complicated uh, time, uh, whether that's uh, uh, related to uh, inflation and interest rates, whether the various conflicts in the world. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious what right now, uh, in your view, is happening and where gold therefore uh, uh, lies in that mess yeah you know i just to put aside the geopolitical issues i don't think that's ever a real reason to invest in gold uh there are really two reasons to invest in gold or to buy gold one is as insurance for your wealth uh and in that regard it's insurance against something that's uh you know is going to happen it's not like your home insurance you buy insurance for your home, but you don't really expect it to catch on fire. Um, when you buy gold as insurance against your wealth, you're insuring against something you know is going to happen, the depreciation of the, the purchasing power of your home currency, typically the dollar. Um, and you know it, uh, you know it's going to happen. The only thing in question is the, the degree and, and how rapidly it depreciates. You do have a good idea though, that the dollar is going to be worth significantly less in three, five, 10 years from now, but gold will hold its value and protect that purchasing power. So that's insurance. Now, when you look at the macroeconomic picture and you see trends that would uh, tend to uh, uh, encourage gold to play catch up, which it often does, when people really get worried about the depreciation of the future value of their currency, they tend to flock in, into gold and gold, which doesn't track inflation tick for tick over long periods of time, tends to play catch up and really rise quickly when people really get concerned. So if you think the macro environment is pointing toward that kind of a catch up move in gold and even an overshoot in gold, then that's when you can then invest in gold as a way to leverage those macro trends. I think we're in, I think we're always in a situation where you want to have gold as insurance. But I think right now we are particularly uh, in a situation that argues for investing in gold and riding that, that kind of macro wave that would uh, uh, result in an acceleration, a rapid acceleration in the gold price. I'm going to ask you a very basic question. And I think it's, you know, uh, it's, it's asked 
other places, but I think it's a, a reasonable question. Now, what, in your view, gives gold its value, its intrinsic value? Um, it is certainly, it's rare, um, yeah. you know, but it's, uh, uh, tell me, tell me why gold? Um, well, nothing else qualifies, you know, uh, you can look at gold as a proxy for work, you know, um, in, in ancient times, there needed to be some type of a currency, some money that would be a proxy, uh, for work. Otherwise everything would have been barter and there was no efficiency to human interactions, economic interactions. So it was a wonderful invention. And as such, there's no other element known to man that functions as well or even perfectly as gold does. It is, you know, it doesn't tarnish, it doesn't degrade, it's not very useful in other areas of commerce. It just sits there looking pretty and doesn't go anywhere, um, which is coincidentally what you want. And it's fairly heavy, so it's dense and there's a lot of value that can be contained in a small amount, easily workable, fashioned into coins and everything else. All of these features made it work perfectly as money. You know, my friend Robert Kiyosaki calls it God's money for this reason, because if you had to come out and invent element that could function as money and gold didn't exist, you would come up with gold. It, it, uh, it serves all those functions. So as because of that factor over thousands of years of being used as money, it has become really synonymous in cultures as money. Um, and you get this gold fever because it, it has an innate in the human consciousness uh, symbolism of value and worth and everlasting worth. So, um, you know, it's, it's something that's happened literally over countless generations that it's been ingrained in the human psyche as this is the ultimate value, the ultimate store of value. And it, it really gets down to physical attributes that are unmatched by any other element known to man. Ultimately, it seems to me that like, you know, the big part of it is it's just been around forever. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, people can talk about the various uh, qualities and all that, but people are buying gold because, you know, an ounce of gold is buying about the same amount of stuff as it did thousands of years ago. Right. For people in general. So, yeah, you know, there's a great website called PricedInGold.com, and what that does is take various indices and items and consumables uh, and services and simply takes their price, their nominal price in dollars over time and, and discounts that by the price of gold, essentially dividing it by the price of gold. In, in dollars at that time. And if you do that, you, you see a number of interesting things. You see, for instance, that, say, the price of, a, uh, of an Ivy League education is today priced in gold the same as it was in the 1930s and over the intervening period. You can see that over the past 60 some odd years, the S&P 500 and the Dow Industrials uh, have don't, gone nowhere. They're at the same value priced in gold that they were in the 30s and 40s and, and 50s. Uh, you see things like the Big Mac has actually gotten cheaper in every major currency if you discount it by the price of gold. And um, so what, if you look at that, looking at those charts, one of the on that website, immensely valuable. Again, one of the things that struck out, struck out to me was that the only thing that 
gold has not been able to keep up with and discount has been the accumulation of federal debt. So if you take the U.S. federal debt and divide it by kilotons of gold, uh, you can see that, generally speaking, that debt keeps rising, even priced in gold, that that we are spending so rapidly that uh, in creating debt so rapidly that even gold can't keep up. There are, however, in that long trend line, a couple of blips where and pretty significant ones. One is when the, uh, that that ratio falls and the value of gold rises. And then there's another one where it falls. It's very significant. Those were the 1970s, and the other one was the 2000s, which were very long-standing bull markets in gold. When it caught up, when it didn't really just trade sideways over long periods of time, but it caught up to people's worries and and macro uh, secular trends, and and then even overshot. And now if you look at the end of that long-term trend line, you see another point where it's going down again. And it seems like gold is is catching up again and beginning another one of these counter-trend moves against debt. If it's like the 70s and 2000s, well, then it's like uh, it's an opportunity like I was just talking about where you really want to invest in that macro picture because the kinds of profits that can be generated uh, are really life-changing if you get in early on one of those trends. Now, is it, do you have a strong feeling about um, physical gold versus gold stocks? Yeah, I, well, I, I guess it's a strong opinion. I think everyone needs to own some physical gold. If you're new to the sector, the first thing you need to do is buy some physical gold, store it well uh, in, an, in, in an accessible location, not a bank safe deposit box, because one of the things you're insuring against is, say, a bank holiday or not having access to a bank, um, but having it accessible and in a reasonable holding, depending on your, your uh, accumulated wealth at that point. Investing and in mining stocks is one of the areas we specialize in 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 gold newsletter um, in finding ways to to leverage positive moves in gold, silver and other metals, other resources through mining stocks. And in mining stocks is an area that's that's inefficient uh, in that you can uh, outwork other people. You spend a little money subscribing to the best newsletters, going to a couple of the conferences, really educating yourself in the area. Uh, you can find uh, undervalued opportunities that, that when, will then outperform the rest of the sector. Um, and it can be a lot of fun, too, because those opportunities, when they're successful, can be really tremendously profitable. What about ETFs? Just like simple ETFs rather than, I mean, some people are probably thinking, well, gosh, it's a pain to you know, store this yeah. stuff and all that. But what do you think about ETFs? Yeah, it's, it's a great avenue to uh, to get a proxy for gold. I, I don't think it replaces the need to have some physical precious metals in your possession or accessible. It, it is a way to, say, increase your uh, gold holdings and your gold exposure very easily and, and in a very liquid fashion. In those ETFs, though, I I recommend the Sprott Physical Bullion Trust for gold. That would be the symbol PHYS. For silver, that would be symbol PSLV. Not SLV, but PSLV would be the way to go. I I know the um, uh, personally know the the people who created that 
those bullion trusts. And I know that they are really hardcore gold and silver bugs who, who uh, buy that gold and store it away and do it for the right reasons and not quite so sure for the other ETFs. What's your take on Bitcoin? I mean, I know it's uh, in some ways it seems like very different, but in, but many of the things that you describe as the qualities of of gold uh, resonate, I think, with hardcore coiners, right? I'm curious what your take is. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i still trying to decide after all these years yeah. on Bitcoin. You know, I'm really uh, attuned to and, and um, you know, positive and, 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 and support the original uh, motivations for, for Bitcoin, uh, creating some independence independence from government-run monetary systems, the anonymity, et cetera. But it seems as time goes by that the anonymity has has gone away and it's more a very, becomes very traceable. Um, and it it's sliding more and more under the uh, umbrella of government regulation and control. So I, I'm not sure if that end goal is quite as pure as it began uh, in one sense, I, I think from an investment standpoint, it's more of a speculation like a non, uh, non-profit generating tech stock would be. Um, but, you know, that in itself has some allure as a speculation because it's very likely to become something at some point, whether it's certain current valuation supports that. I don't think anybody can say because nobody really knows what it's going to be, despite what they may say. Uh, so you can't get a, a fair value of its, of its value. But if you're playing momentum, if you're playing technicals and you're playing it as a speculation, then I think there's probably a place for it right now. Um, but as a safe haven, I think it was proven not to be that, at least not yet, over the past year, 18 months. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> just when you look at what's going on, um, Globally, uh, various wars, conflicts, um, you know, Ukraine, um, I guess, you know, if you look at China and potential threats towards Taiwan, um, it seems like there's a little bit of a, um, a movement right now, and there's always been, but more so now to sort of sidestep the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious on your take on that. And I mean, and then what the role of gold uh, by these nations um, would play in that kind of sidestep. Yeah, I think there's a valid argument for these nations wanting to sidestep the dollar. Um, I don't think it's practical unless they can find some very credible and foolproof way to associate a new trade currency with gold. Um Otherwise, you are subject to the whims of Xi or Putin, uh, what side of the bed they woke up on that day as to whether you can get your money out, whether you can get your money in, what the value is going to be, what the motivations may be, et cetera. And while there's lots to, uh, uh, to criticize about the current state of, uh, of law and the rule of law in the United States, it's still the best out there. And, and so forth, and, and therefore, it is the, the natural haven for wealth around the world. Um, and I think it'll continue to be that way. And the only way that a 
really credible alternative uh, to the dollar uh, could could emerge would be if it were attached to gold in some real uh, ineffective and credible way. Um, but you know that that could happen. That could happen, and I think. Russia, I think China and a number of other countries are moving toward that, if not uh, through some type, through very clear strategy, then at least in a very general feeling that uh, the dollar is not worth what it used to be because of all of these entitlements, um, uh, debts, et cetera. And, and that's something I think that's, that's also uh, valid for every other uh, developed world currency because uh, debts have been uh, accumulated to such an extent that none of these fiat currencies are really worth what they should be, and that they're all rolling down the devaluation hill at the same time. Um, so I think that uh, the People's Bank of China, the Russian Central Bank, and other central banks are accumulating gold because they kind of sense this instability in the financial system very generally right now. They have they're been for a while, though, right? Strategies. I mean- They've been accumulating for some time, haven't they, Ryan? I mean, that- yeah, about the over the last decade or so, uh, about ten or eleven years ago, uh, it was when it kind of flipped, and central banks stopped selling gold and started buying gold. And since then, they've been perhaps the world's major buyer and accumulator of gold. Um, and you know, they're they're betting against their book, as it were. But who else to understand their book uh, better than they? What do you think of um, this concept of uh, central uh, bank digital currencies? You know, like the um, uh, I'm, I'm curious what the what you think about them and how you look at them through the lens of gold. Yeah, it's a, it's not to get uh, to sound crazy, but it, it would be a sign of, of financial apocalypse. Is, yeah, is what it would be. It would be giving the uh the central banks and the government you know the 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 leash on on all of your activities the stick yeah. to beat with total control over your uh what you buy you what you sell what who you support what you do um it it would be absolutely uh, uh apocalyptic in its implications and the more that central banks or or media uh, carrying water for the central banks and the government try to allay fears, the more dangerous it is and the more you know that their motivations are not pure because otherwise they wouldn't be pushing it so hard. So I, ironically and, and thankfully, I don't think uh, Chairman Jerome Powell is a fan of, of CBDCs and um, uh, I don't think he's pushing for it, but the next guy probably will. Um, so it, it is extremely dangerous. And, you know, I would urge anyone to do whatever they can to advocate and urge uh, their their uh, representatives to try and get something enshrined in law that we cannot institute that, at least in the United States and anywhere else in the world. It's it would really give uh, government, uh, you know, it it would create a collectivist, uh, uh, despotic government right off the bat. I guess it depends a little bit, too, on what the use of that decentralized um, uh, central bank currency would be, right? I mean, in a way, if you look at all of the, the vast majority of U.S. dollars are already digital, right? 
Yeah. And so can they track those dollars? Yeah, they probably can track those dollars just fine through the banking system, right? But I guess the question is whether the idea is a central bank um, a coin that would replace, say, cash, you know, and um, and I don't know that that's where they've gone, but it is, yeah, it is a little bit of an alarming situation. Um, what do you make of the current uh, banking situation? And, you know, like, obviously that's another, uh, that's another impetus for gold price to go up. But um, yeah, what's your take on, on all the, you know, the recent bank failures and all that? Yeah, you know, I don't think, generally speaking, I don't think you take the uh, interest rates at their lowest level in 5,000 years and easiest monetary policy in central banking history that persists for 12, 14 years. And you don't take that and then all of a sudden reverse it with the second uh, most severe rate hikes in central banking history um, and the greatest in terms of percentage uh, rate hikes and interest rate increases in, in central banking history. I don't think you go from one extreme to the other without breaking something. And obviously we've broken a few things. And the, the question at this point is, are, is that sign of something that's endemic that we're going to have more of these uh, banking failures? Um, it's a wider spectrum than you would think because Silicon Valley Bank was very exposed to duration risk. A lot of community banks are not. They have most of their portfolios out in loans uh, and are therefore actually probably benefiting. Um, but I think there are more cockroaches in the kitchen uh, that are going to erupt, not necessarily in the banking system, but somewhere, whether, whether it's derivatives, whether it's a purely just the recession that seems to be looming, uh, whether it's a break in the stock market, uh, some hiccups in the financial plumbing, i.e. The, the bond market, um, something else is going to erupt and probably a few things down the road. And when that happens, the important thing that people need to remember is that the Federal Reserve, when they react, their policy prescription is going to have to be much more dramatic than what they did post-COVID. And if you remember post-COVID, they accomplished in four to five days what they took four to five years to do post-2008. Uh, this time, they're going to have to do that much more because the markets, they're not addicted to easy money. They're addicted to ever easier money. And like an addict, they develop a tolerance to the drug. I mean, you're very familiar with this. So that the dosage has to be increased to achieve the same effect they will have to do much more than what they did post-COVID when the next crisis comes. What that crisis will be, no one really knows, but the odds are it's going to be something that will be surprising. You think because of, uh, of the rapid, uh, the, the crisis is coming because of this rapid increase in, in, in interest rates, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so, so I guess the question is then, you know, uh, I think a lot of people are, you know, have, have, surmise that there's a possibility of something happening where, you know, I think in general, historically, um, the Fed, when you have a, a hot market or hot economy, um, can raise rates until something breaks, mm -hmm. right? And something did break, but maybe it wasn't enough for it to break. And then something bigger can break. And at some point, they can't ignore it anymore. 
But if you have inflation still running at six, seven, eight percent, um, then what do you do? You're in a situation where you have to reduce, where you're bringing rates, uh, interest rates down, but inflation continues to be a problem. Yeah, and and while I don't think in the inflation will be seven or eight percent or more, I think six would be the top end of the range. I would predict, but I think it'll probably be four to six percent, kind of persistently, uh, which is still well above the the Fed's two percent goal. Um, and I don't think they can do anything about it. Again, they they Powell does not have Volcker's tool bag. Tool bag. When Volcker raised in uh, rates over fifteen percent. Uh, the uh, the federal debt was only about 35% of GDP. Uh, today, it's closer to 135%. So when the Fed increases rates, it creates a lot of other dislocations and costs in the economy now because the debt loads are so enormously high, so enormously greater than they ever were before. And, you know, you can look at individual and corporate debt, uh, and then you get direct effects on the economy. But if you just look at federal debt, the cost of servicing the federal debt has, in the last report, soared to $852 billion a year. Uh, That would have been mind-boggling as an annual deficit uh, not too long ago. But now that's just what we're paying in interest in the federal debt to, you know, anybody who holds treasuries, including China, including, you know, fat cat hedge funds and and investors, et cetera. So I think that that cost of servicing the federal debt will soon rise over a trillion dollars and things are rapidly getting out of control from that standpoint. That alone is kind of a brick wall in the way of the Fed. Uh, They could literally crater the budget if they got the uh, Fed funds rate up to, you know, five and a half, six percent or more like the market was predicting by this summer just a few weeks ago. Now they're looking at the Fed having to actually cut rates before the end of the year. So we've had a tremendous switch in expectations due to the banking crisis and the looming recession. And I think we're going to have another real uh, awakening coming up when something else starts to to crack in the uh, in the bond market and de- the derivative market and the stock market in the economy or wherever it may come from, it's going to happen, and the Fed will have to do what it's always done: create excess liquidity in a dramatic fashion, and then because of that, foster the next bubble. And then, presumably, I guess your thesis would be that. If you're in that situation and you have an on, you have ongoing inflation, five, six percent even, and in that environment, the Fed is lowering interest rates, then yeah. the people who are holding on to uh, inflationary hedged assets will do best. And those would be, say, gold, it'd be real estate. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Gold, real estate, silver, uh, t- tangible assets. In general, um, you know, you get into some of the tangible assets, you get into specialist areas where you get actually even collectors and you have to have a collector mentality if you're going to make money from it. But generally speaking, gold, silver, uh, income producing real estate are are ways to go. Um, There are arguments right now for a, a whole suite of base metals out there in energy metals, battery metals. 
because alongside all of these macroeconomic trends, there's a uh, um, technological trend toward electrification of transportation, EVs, uh, the the revamping and of the ele- of electrical grids around the world, et cetera. That's going to demand uh, ever greater uh, 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 supplies of copper, lithium, uh, graphite, cobalt, uh, zinc, et cetera. So there's a lot, there's a whole nother argument there for base metals, but you know, that's, that's a topic for another day, I guess. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, um, what are some of the other metals that you're, that you think are positioned well right now? Yeah. You know, and like I just said, I think copper is one of them. Um, lithium is, is a little tough to play right now because it's gotten, it goes through these periodic boom bust cycles and we're in kind of a boom right now. The way to play that really is through um, mining stocks. Um, so I, I would be cautious about getting into that market right now. Longer term, I think the price of copper is going to double over the next, say, three to five years or so. Uh, there's just not enough copper out there. And um, and there are a lot of copper projects around the world that are known, but they're just not quite uh, economic. They need a higher copper price to be economically viable. Um, to meet the demand that's coming up, every one of those will need to be developed. So I think uh, mining stocks in the copper space are, are a great way to play that trend, which is, similar to and somewhat associated with the macroeconomic trend I was talking about, but then uh, a, a bit immune to it or a bit disassociated from it as well. So, Brian, tell us a little bit about, you know, I've, I've attended the New Orleans conference uh, once before. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, it is the oldest uh, investment conference in the world and has the, the uh, I think, the the best reputation out there for delivering cutting edge information from top experts in a very non-commercial way you know we have an exhibit hall that's filled with great opportunities and great companies uh that have the opportunity to present their discussions and their products and services and their stories in breakout sessions where you can go to and listen to it but other than that we have a main general session hall that brings some of the brightest, uh, most insightful minds out there today uh, on that stage and completely non-commercial presentations. Um, and even beyond that, the, some of the best information you get isn't really coming from the podium on the stage, but from your fellow investors, because the fact that these are people who came down to New Orleans to spend four days in a really an intellectually stimulating environment they've kind of self-identified as the people you want to talk to and, and exchange ideas with uh, and that is as valuable easily as valuable as information that's coming from our stage so it's a wonderfully stimulating environment uh, there is an, an intellectual energy here in new orleans and and of course you have new orleans with all of the sights and sounds and food and music and ambiance that that presents. And uh, that's why it's been going on for, this will be our 49th year. Uh, there are people who have been coming f- for decades and would not think of of, of missing it in a year. So it, it, it's a kind of thing that, that really has to be experienced to really be understood. And uh, it's a legacy that we continue to try to burnish with every, uh, every event. 
And tell me about the newsletter. Well, that's the oldest uh, gold and silver or precious metals advisory in the world today. We're in our 52nd year. All of this was started by a man named Jim Blanchard, a real visionary who was a real icon of the gold and silver industry. He uh, acted more than anyone else to get gold legalized, uh, gold ownership legalized in the early 1970s. Started his newsletter and his business educating the public um, about gold and silver and associated investments in 1971, really on the day that Nixon closed the gold window or, or severed the last tie between gold and the dollar. Um, and uh, at that time, it was illegal to even own gold, um, interestingly and, and weirdly enough. And obviously, that was a situation where we knew we were going to, or Jim knew we were going into a highly inflationary environment, but it was like the captain of the Titanic steered toward the iceberg and then confiscated everybody's life jackets and poked holes in the lifeboats. You couldn't own gold. You couldn't protect yourself from what was coming. So uh, he worked to get that changed. And in 1974, they uh, legalized gold again, gold ownership. So Jim started these investment conferences to teach people how to invest in in gold. Over the years, it's expanded to uh, cover every asset class uh, and geopolitical issues as well as macroeconomic issues and everything that drives the markets. So it's it's really kind of a um, catch-all investment event, covers everything. And then Gold Newsletter really focuses on the macroeconomics that drive the metals, uh, focuses on the metals markets, but also covers uh, dozens of junior mining stocks in each issue that uh, gives some recommendations on companies that we believe are are really well positioned to uh, to deliver outsized gains as they discover or develop uh, mining projects. Where can people learn more about both New Orleans Conference and also the newsletter? Is there a website that we can refer to? Yeah, goldnewsletter.com, all one word, or neworleansconference.com. Uh, either one gives you all of our information and uh, you know details in the long history of our of our organization and where we're going and, and how you can can profit from the information we produce. We don't sell gold and silver. We don't sell investments. Uh, but we do provide uh, great information and uh, there's a free uh, buyer's guide or investor's guide rather to gold and silver that you can get on our site. That's uh, completely objective and comprehensive covers everything you need to know about investing in the precious metals arena. Brian, Brian Lundin, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on wealth formula podcast today and love to have you back in the future. Thank you, Buck. Great talking with you. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. It is uh, Frumpy Buck coming back to you to close out this episode. An interesting show. I think it's worth thinking about. Again, I, I'm not sold completely on it, but I do think if you start looking at, you know, the gold as a, as a true hedge, and I think looking at it as a smaller part of your portfolio, maybe that does potentially make sense. By the way, I still think Bitcoin is something that... Uh, you know, has a very similar pattern. I mean, people talk about the volatility of Bitcoin, but the reality is that 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 volatility almost certainly, you know, like 10 years is going to go away. It's going to go away because the market cap is going to be just huge. 
And it's already big now, but, you know, market caps being huge will certainly help it to to stay more, you know, to, st- to be, be less volatile. Anyway, interesting food for thought. Hope you enjoyed the show this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.